Greetings, Journeyers, and welcome back to another episode of Read Keeper's Journey. This episode, we're going to do things a little differently. We're going to see the world through the eyes of Leander as he struggles with the knowledge that Michael, Steve, and Bear are human beings, also known as Anthropus, which are considered exceedingly evil in the eyes of the Hyperborean. In the following chapter, we journey with Heather's group as they finally make it to the palace. Now, back to the story. Chapter 39 Leander walked along the palace corridor with his eyes latched onto the gold hem of the white robe before him. His attention wasn't on the ornate windows or the displays of the spoils of war set in the indentations of the stone walls. All he saw was the hymn, as he followed his fellow priest while his thoughts spun. Men, he thought, the Anthropus have returned. An icy pit grew in his stomach, leaching the heat from his limbs. Men. His mouth turned pasty with just the thought of the word bringing forth all the stories that his brother Candor tormented him with so long ago. Michael Reed was, Leander was certain, Hyperborean. But Leander was just as certain that he wasn't. The two beliefs juxtaposed in his mind with each battling for supremacy. Why wouldn't he deny being human and let Leander move on? Why wouldn't he denounce being something so depraved? It made no sense. Michael Reed certainly did not act like a man. Of course, he was a little rash and given to outbursts, and his ignorance of the cultural and hyperborean history was astounding, not to mention his complete lack of knowledge for Trendonianism religion. But he was not a vile, degenerate creature. In fact, Leander saw him as his only true companion during his short journey with the Metaf. Leander was no fool. He saw that Xylon barely tolerated him, a feeling that he had grown accustomed to from those outside the faith. The wayward always disdained those on the right path. However, Xylon had not abandoned him and went so far as to aid him in his pilgrimage. Leander clenched his jaw as he remembered his brother's taunting on how ill-suited he was for the pilgrimage. Pray that Trendok comes to your rescue, little brother, Kandor had said. Do not forget I have seen you hunt and know that you would have starved long ago if not for me. Leander also knew the Mittaf she-devils despised him, as they did all things Hyperborean. How Trendok allowed them to live, he would never understand. Even the Lektok Steve, who always thought he was so funny, found every excuse to distance himself from Leander. The Lestrogon bear was cordial enough, but that was to be expected from his kind. The day a Lestrogon takes a side is the day the world ends, or so the saying goes. But the kindness of Michael Reed shone so brightly as he and Leander were surrounded by such darkness. True, he was ignorant of the faith, but he showed an interest in learning and surprising insight to the faith, which was a far cry from being, Leander dug his fingers into his palms, a man. Even in that dreaded moment of terror and anguish when he fled, a faint hope clung to him that Xylon would deny his realization but Xylon failed to even try to dissuade him of his fears. That grumpy old Hyperborean knew, and though Leander tried to fight the knowledge, he knew that not only was Michael Reed an Anthropus, 
but so were his two companions. It was madness, but the truth spoke to him. Leander had spent years training himself to be completely honest in his innermost thoughts. How could one truly repent if one lied to oneself? He knew it in his bones, as much as he knew that one day Trindoc would return. Those three were Anthropus, humans, men. Heracles rose in his mind, and he shivered at the thought of what one man can do, let alone three. It was his sacred duty to warn his fellow believers that evil had returned to the land, but they had saved his life, as well as not showing any indication of evil. Worse, Xylon didn't even seem to care if they were men or not. Deeds, not race, determines the nature, the intimidating Hyperborean had said. Leander knew all about men and their deeds. But these humans made no action to smite him on the revelation of their secret. They must know he was duty-bound to warn his fellow Hyperboreans. This may be Trindoc's will for his life. Of course, sounding the alarm could elevate his status. He may even have a choice in which sect to serve, if a sour taste filled his mouth. If only he betrayed his friend. Michael Reed would not deny being human, but Michael Reed was his friend. Trinduck, guide me, he silently prayed. The hymn stopped. His hooded guide stepped aside and ushered Leander through a wooden door. Confess and receive blessings, he said as Leander entered the small chamber alone. The thick door closed behind him, changing the feeling of the room to one of sanctity. Here he was protected from a world steeped in sin. Here was his refuge. The room was small and circular, possibly three strides wide, and it was lit by two candelabrums, which cast delicate shadows on the blood-red draperies that covered the walls. As with all things in Trindonianism, the curtains operated on multiple levels of symbolism and practicality. The color was a reminder of the blood spilt from the rebellion to Trindoc, but the thick material also absorbed the sound of confessions from lingering ears beyond the doors and walls. In truth, he had always cherished his times in the confessional, finding solace in quiet rooms with the cathartic listing of his many sins. But now, a secret burned in his heart, making the room feel hot and far too small. A compulsion from his childhood that had infuriated his mother, he appeared perfectly still while he would scrape sharp nails in the palms of the same hands, bloody, almost as if harming himself eased his inner turmoil, or at least exacted a cost for his disobedience. A Hyperborean in a long, plain, white robe sat on a simple wooden chair and studied him. The robe was purposefully without any decoration or symbol that indicated rank or status in the Trindonian religion. It was said that all were equal in these rooms, but Leander always felt small and inadequate before the ears of Trindoc. Leander knelt and stared at the ground filled with shadows from the flickering candlelight in the stifling room. He resisted the urge to pull out his collar that suddenly seemed to want to strangle him. Please, Trindoc, guide me, he prayed silently. I have walked the grounds of our sin. I have tread the path of the betrayers. 
the soil that is both hallowed and cursed is our sin forgiven. The priest intoned, Our Lord still hides his face. Leander recited the catechism. Then we will continue our search until our sin is paid. And forgiveness is received. Have you added to your sin? The priest asked. Normally, Leander took great pleasure in his confessions. He enjoyed the meticulous delving of his soul and the dispersal of sin from his body into Trindox. All have sinned, and therefore all were in need of forgiveness. He felt that no transgression was too small, and everyone must be revealed and purged. There was freedom in the truth, but now the words fled from him. I have... The pause grew into a cloying silence. Yes. I have doubted. As a word slowly left his mouth, he knew that he would honor the debt he owed to Michael Reed and his companions. I was lost in the woods, and I, I doubted our Lord could save me. Doubt is a minor but very troubling sin, for it can grow into a sickness of the mind and soul, the Hyperborean instructed. But doubt sought out and expelled can increase faith. Do not lose heart. A small sacrifice of three doves should suffice and cleanse your deeds in the sight of our Lord. Let my sin be added to those our Lord will forgive at his return. Leander said. He combed his mind, searching for any other sins to confess. There were always so many that they would roll off his tongue for hours. Now his tongue stuck to the roof of his mouth with the one glaring confession he needed to make, but couldn't. If he confessed about his friend, wasn't that a betrayal? A worse sin? The original sin? And your companions... Do they doubt as well? A cold dread fell over him. In theory, the confessor was the only one present in the confessional. The priest transformed into the ear and mouth of Trendog, so the person could directly request forgiveness to the Lord that they had offended. By his questions, the priest proclaimed that he was the eye of Trendog, a seeker, and that was something altogether different and exceedingly more terrifying. This was not only an affront to the holiness of the ritual, it was blasphemous. He knew he had made the right decision to be true to his friend, Michael Reed. The Metaf have their Anani. Leander answered, but he knew what the priest really wanted to know. And the others, did they put the seed of doubt in your heart? Perhaps they need to confess. Is it possible they hide hatred for the way? For the first time in his life, fear of his fellow monks crept into his heart. No, they are good men. He bowed his head and coughed. Fool, he shouted in his mind. Your wicked tongue almost betrayed them. Sweat began to seep from his pores. He cleared his throat and begged Trindok to steady his voice. They are good members. Trindok sent them to save my life. The despised attacked me at midday. Impossible, 
The heavy chair tipped and slammed into the floor, a tremendous sound in the small room as the priest sprang to his feet. Leander fell backward, arm raised to ward off a blow he knew was coming. I swear by my soul and by my hope of forgiveness, if it were not for the grace of our Lord, I would not be here today. Did he mean to save you or punish you for your doubt? The priest sneered. Sacrifice a bull, one that has not sired and is without blemish to purge your soul, lest the taint of the despised seep into you. He turned and exited a door that was previously hidden behind the draperies. Leander stood, a cold sweat seeping out of his skin in the claustrophobically hot room. He stared at the fallen chair, and for the first time in his life, he found himself torn between his love for his faith and the loyalty to his friend. Leander wept. Chapter 40 Hoping that reuniting with Steve wasn't far off, Heather thankfully stepped onto the dock, but not as thankful as Callista, she bet. The dryad had been the first to disembark. Stacy was hot on her heels, asking over her shoulder if Heather would gather their things as she chased after her mentor. Stacy and Callista had grown closer the past few days, their bonds strengthening as Stacy nursed Callista. Heather didn't know if the ribbon-hair-tying ritual that the two had performed forever ago really did connect them on a metaphysical level. But she did know that few things brought people tighter together than a shared hardship. Gold still cried from above in search of any morsel that fell to the ground or that was foolish enough to be left unattended, but the air lacked the tangy scent of salt. It reminded Heather more of a lakeshore smell laden with moss and mud. She missed the salt in the air, but the fresh sea breeze had faded hours ago. Once they had entered the enormous bay, she had no doubt it would have been San Francisco back home. They were directed to a straight, narrow channel that ran parallel to a natural river that flowed inland. The one-way channel provided quick access for cargo ships to reach the capital, Roe Pinmon, without dealing with other nautical traffic. They had sped along the water highway, leaving the lovely sea far behind as they watched the rural landscape race by. Although Scavia, the centurion leader of the group, had said the wind was in their favor, the speed of their journey even outperformed his expectations. Despite her desire that nearly bordered on need to reunite with Steve, Heather wished she could have spent just a little more time at the enormous bay before racing off to the capital city. At the mouth of the bay, where she believed the Golden Gate Bridge stood in her world, she was there only once when she was twelve, there stood a massive lighthouse. She couldn't tell how tall it was, maybe five hundred feet, but it dwarfed all the other buildings that filled the surrounding landscape. At first she didn't know what she was looking at. With the structure being square, and not the rounded shape she associated with lighthouses back home. Alias, who would always be the poet in her mind, stood by her when the structure first came into view in the early morning hours, its bright light burning through the fog. He said it was his favorite sight in all the world. The soldier stood, leaning against the ship's railing. If Heather ignored his pointy ears, she thought he looked almost human, that is, until he looked straight at her. There was something about the eyes of Hyperboreans that she could not pinpoint, but there was a foreign quality to them that clearly said, non-human. I grew up just over there, the poet said, pointing to a hill. My mother said that it was a symbol of Trindoc lighting the way of truth 
My father said it showed that the light of the tower shines for us all, good or bad, rich or poor. I like to think of it as what we can accomplish when we set aside our differences and work together. What is it about sailing that makes guys want to talk to me about their parents? Heather thought. Alias explained that the lighthouse was built as a tribute to Trendoc by King Phaeus, the second son of the Mad King. The beacon not only guided ships, but also served as a signal for Trendoc that he might find his way back home to his people and forgive them of their sin. Stories of miracles surrounded the construction of it, and amazingly, not one life was lost during its building, further solidifying the belief that Trendoc blessed the endeavor. The crystal lens that magnified the light was crafted by a group of giants that once lived to the north, but had disappeared searching to travel the world. Alias said that the Gigantes were seafaring folk, and they knew the importance of lighthouses and how to make them. Their lighthouses are said to dot the coastlines all over the world, Alias said, and I've heard talk of them lining the edge of the world to warn sailors of falling off. Heather opened her mouth to say that the earth was round, and then stopped. Well, maybe it isn't here, she thought. I heard it's a custom for sailors to pray to the Anani Gigantes for good weather and safe travels, he continued. If you watch, they'll touch their right shoulder, then their forehead, and then their left, a symbol for the lighthouse lens that's supposed to ward off evil or bring blessings, depending on how it's intended. Heather had seen several of the sailors make the motion on their trip, but she had also caught dark whispers of a sea change to the north, and now hushed tones held nuances of fear for the guardian of the sea. The past several years, any who traveled far north were never heard from again. Hello, Earth to Heather, Ken said, brushing past her. Heather snapped back to the present and hefted hers, Stacy's, and Callista's pack at the foot of the dock, momentarily surprised by her own strength. Now that she thought about it, her shirt felt tighter across the shoulders and back. She figured she had buffed up a little with all the horseback riding. She smiled to herself, imagining Steve's reaction when he saw her again. No, it's okay, I got these, but thanks for the offer, Heather said as she followed Ken across the dock, making her way to the Centurion escorts with the others, all the while taking in the sights and sounds of the harbor. Whoever these Hyperboreans were, they were ingenious architects. Rope Penmon was just as impressive, though in an altogether different way. The magnitude of the impregnable wall spoke volumes, but the organization of the inland port with its massive ships and dry dock and the numerous vessels being escorted about was beyond Heather's comprehension. To build a wall was one thing, but to maintain the lifeblood of a city was where the real work lay. You should go ahead. I will follow with the others. Alias was saying to Scavia as she approached. No, Scavia shook his head. We both were charged with their care. We will go together and be honored together. Go and secure new horses. Alias nodded and marched away. Scavia turned to Callista. I will deliver you to the palace. That is where your friends will go if they are not already there. I must report what has happened at Portus Petra. He grinned, though to Heather his eyes looked troubled. It is not often one gets to report the beginning of a war. He raised his voice. Everyone stay close. I will not be delayed.
Ro-Pinmon was packed with people. The streets were laced with colorful banners, vendors selling from carts, and street performers vying for attention and perhaps a little coin from the river of people flowing past them. Despite the huge crowds, Heather's group passed easily through the wide avenue. Scavia led the horse-riding procession, his armor and helmet gleaming in the sun as a Hyperborean mass melted away from his war steed. Are you familiar with the Nundine Festival? Salsus the Stoic asked as he cantered up to Heather. Heather shook her head. People from all over the kingdom come to the cities to celebrate it. For those who practice Trendonianism, it is viewed as a time of reflection and feast, as a symbolic gesture to the nine days leading up to Maus, the mad king's sin of attacking Trendoc. The festival ends with Nocte Infernum, a night when children dress like the despised to gather treats from their neighbors. Needless to say, it has devolved into an excuse to delve into their more licentious appetites and for merchants to turn a nice profit. The thought appalled Heather. How could these people make light of those monsters? Those things that almost killed her in the forest were a blight, and these people used them as an excuse to party? They make a joke of those things? Heather said, disgusted. Sadly, Portus Petra was my first time seeing the Exotheneo. Before, I had only seen what could be construed as evidence of their existence. Seeing is believing, Heather said. In my experience, sentient beings often see what they believe, rather than believe what they see, Salsus answered. The crowds fell away as they passed through an immense gate that allowed passage through an internal city wall. The landscape became a huge central park type of inner courtyard filled with fountains, reflecting pools, and a wide stone road that led to the palace front steps. The dominating feature, though, was the enormous fortress-slash-palace set in the middle of the grounds. The whole structure was built on a 12-foot-high plateau with wide steps that led into the embellished entrance. Apart from its size, Heather thought it would fit right in with any monument in Washington, D.C. Scavia slid from his horse and handed his reins to one of the officers at the bottom of the steps. He commanded Salsus to care for the horses and began to climb the steps with Alias already at his side. Heather's group followed suit and hurried after the two centurions. Heather's eyes scanned the hallways and opened doors looking for Steve all the while trying to keep up with the brisk pace set by the centurions. Heather thought she might scream if they somehow beat the boys to the capital. She tried to force thoughts of the attack of Morro Bay out of her mind, but the memory of Stacy fearing for Michael's life kept seeping through the edges of her brain. For the first time since the beginning of their journey, Heather started to worry that Stacy had been right. What if those things found Steve? She thought. No, he has to be safe. He has to be here. She glanced at Callista, who looked better with every step. She hardly looked like someone who had spent the last few days with her face in a bucket. Somehow, the dryad looked better than Stacy, who had a pinched and tired look around her eyes. Kin kept pawing at his chest, and Heather wondered if he caught fleas during the trip. 
She almost slammed into Scavia's armor-plated back before she realized the group had come to a halt. Before them stood two huge wooden doors dressed in gold and jewels, and before the doors stood two very impressive-looking guards. His Majesty is with an audience. One of the guards was saying to Scavia, If you do not let me through immediately, your heads will be on a pike and your eyes a raven's dinner before the sun dies today. Scavia growled. Both guards looked taken aback. It was a look Heather suspected that was new to them. Your weapons, one said. Without hesitation, both Scavia and Alias unbuckled their belts, letting their swords clatter to the floor and push past the bewildered guards. Callista led the rest through the doors after she placed her bow and quiver by the wall. Scavia swept both doors open, revealing a vast chamber with vaulted ceilings supported by huge marble columns. A large glass dome in the ceiling stood over the dais, illuminating the person seated on the ornate throne. Heather's eyes scanned the room. Before her and off to one side was a group of girls that had to be Metef. Each stood defiantly, eyeing the guards that stood at their post before each column. Heather's eyes latched onto a redhead who was speaking to an old Hyperborean who sat on the throne. So, Heather thought, there was no mistaking that flaming red hair. But where was Stephen? Among the dryads stood a tall, grizzled-looking Hyperborean standing next to a thinner one who, from even this distance, Heather could tell was sweating profusely. Off to the side of Zoe stood another odd group. One was a handsome, thick Hyperborean with muscular corded arms and a gorgeous blonde beard. The other was a hulking, hairy figure that reminded her of a character in one of Stephen's science fiction movies, a wooka or something. The hairy guy shifted his stance, and suddenly she could see Michael, a few paces behind Zoe, looking dangerously defiant. He seemed taller than Heather remembered him, and there was something else she could not put her finger on and didn't have the interest to pursue. His hand kept on drifting to his side like he had forgotten something there and kept expecting to find it. She scanned the room again, her eyes drawn back to the blonde beard. Steve? The door boomed behind her. Heather turned around, knowing she would see Ken trying to melt into the floor. Sorry, he whispered with all eyes staring at him. Heather whipped her head back to Steve, who motioned with her one hand and gave her a thumbs up with the other one. Stay there, we're cool. She understood, but was far from liking it. She nodded, and despite a flurry of emotions that all sought her attention, the relief of seeing Steve safe and sound eclipsed them all. We made it, she thought. Everything's gonna be okay. Scavia strode forward and knelt before the throne. My king, Portus Petra has fallen, he declared, throwing the chamber into chaos. That's all for this episode, Juniors. And just when it was about to get good, you're going to have to come back next week and see what happens in the palace and how it affects the group. Until then, thank you for listening and be good to one another.